Welcome. If you're looking to unlock the secrets of the mind, to live a life that's free of care and anxiety, and to be the happiest you that you can be, then you're in the right place. This is Growing the Good, the Mindful Podcast. Hello and welcome to Growing the Good, the Mindful Podcast with me, your host, and I'm joined today again by my good friend and co-host, Hayley Kearns. Hi Hayley, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you, Neil, as always, and, and how are you? I'm fine, thank you. We're back in, back in the community centre. You might notice the slight sound of the roar <laughs> of traffic going past, but we're mindful people and we can cope. Uh, so you'll be wondering, Hayley, what today's podcast is about, won't you? Uh, yeah, definitely. I've not got a clue, so... Well, I thought, wouldn't it be nice to do a kind of a top five, if you like, top five mindful people. Oh, okay. um, And I set myself a bit of a challenge, so I wasn't allowed to have the Buddha, and I wasn't allowed to have Thich Nhat Hanh. Well, I thought it was going to be you your number be, one. You yeah, thought it would, be, would have been yeah. my number yeah, one. Yeah. So I'm taking those as a given. Okay. Um, and I tried to think a little bit more creatively. Oh, okay. um, so if I said to you, don't look back in anger, what would you think of? Do you want me to be honest? Oh, sure, always. <laughs> I would think of Oasis. Oasis. Yeah, it was I, don't I heard you say. Yeah. Um, or would you think of John Osborne's Look Back in Anger, Kitchen Sink Drama? Mm. Less so, maybe? Yeah, less uh. so. Okay. Um, would you think of James Thurber? No, I don't think I would. No. I've never um, heard of James Thurber. You've never heard of... No. Have you heard of The Secret Life of Walter Mitty? Yes. That's what he wrote. He oh, was the did author he? of... Oh, right, okay. Um, and you have heard a quote of his because he was the one who said, let us not look back in anger, nor forward in fear, but around in awareness. Oh. So I thought, well, that, that, that takes into account many kind of mindful principles, doesn't it? It does. Um, that a lot of us look back in anger and that causes us suffering um, and similarly a lot of us look forward in fear of things that have not yet happened um, but forget to be aware of this present moment. Um, so James Thurber, an American cartoonist, author, journalist, essayist, essayist and playwright during the 1930s, 40s and 50s, um, best known to us perhaps for being the author of the short story The Secret Life of Walter Mitty which has been adapted into different movie TV, representations. Yeah, um, so what do you think? Yeah, do we do we have a tendency to look back in anger, and perhaps why? Yeah, I guess people find it hard to let go of things that have angered them, or maybe people mm. that have angered them. And yeah, I guess the more you keep that in your presence, the more you keep past that, yeah. sufferings that we. Yeah, and I think from the groups that we do, certainly when we work with adults, that is mm. the the one part of mindfulness that they find it most challenging to get on board with isn't it yeah they can accept the being kind to people around us and appreciating the beauty of the world and that present moment but that letting go of past not even trauma but past hurt maybe mm, you think it's part of that negative bias that our, yeah, our yeah, human brains gotta... are more happy and eager to hold on to difficult memories than we are onto fond memories, good things that happen to us. Yeah, and it's Perhaps that. Perhaps as a self defence, we Yeah, it's that keeping us. safe, yeah. isn't it? It's like, you, you know, if yeah. you know. If I keep reminding you of this painful memory, then it won't happen again. Yeah, yeah. Um, what about being this, this fear of an uncertain future? I 
think people always worry about the unknown, don't they? You know, if it's something that you're it's not. Still part of our negative bias. Yeah, definitely. But we're, we're, we're instinctively kind of inclined to think the worst of what might happen in a, mm. in a situation, to see the, the worst in any given situation. Whereas if we can look around in awareness, then things aren't that bad. Right now, here in this moment, uh, you know, our health is okay, our finances are okay, our relationships are okay, um, and there's lots of things that we can celebrate and be grateful for. And then we're less likely to be dragged into that difficult past or catapulted into an uncertain future. Mm. So he's my number five, uh, James mm. Thurber. And uh, a little credit there to uh, a guy called Samuel Rodenheiser, whose blog I was inspired by, I came across and thought, yeah, I like that quote, yeah, so let us not look back in anger, nor forward in fear, but around in awareness. It's a nice little summing up of, of mindfulness, mm. you know, when people ask you what mindfulness is, it's always a bit of a challenge to explain, yeah, what isn't is it? it? Well, who are you what it is you about do? that present moment awareness, so that's quite a nice... There is another episode of our podcast all about that, you can, you can go back and see yeah. who are you and what do you do. Uh, yeah, what is mindfulness? Um, so that was number five. At number four, I've got Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, I know you're mm. familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. No. 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 Okay. German. German. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's um, about all I can get. From well, that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I picked him because he kind of characterises a bit of a dilemma that I have about mindfulness that we'll come on to in a moment. But as a pastor and theologian, Bonhoeffer decided to resist the Nazis in Germany. But his resistance was not solely theological. He played a key role, a key leadership role in the Confessing Church, a major source of Christian opposition to Hitler and his anti-Semitism, and was a principal of the secret seminary of Finkelwald in Pomerania. Oh. Mm. Um, it was here that he developed his theological visions of radical discipleship and communal life. In 1938, he joined the Wehrmacht's Abwehr, the German military intelligence office, in order to seek international support for the plot against Hitler. He's one of the people implicated in the attempt to blow Hitler up, if you remember. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, but Bonhoeffer was continuously forced to make decisions that separated him from family and friends and colleagues, and ultimately led to his martyrdom in Flossenburg concentration camp less than a month before the Second World War came to an end. Okay. So this was, it's called Bonhoeffer's Dilemma, because he was a pacifist who hated war and wanted peace, but recognised that sometimes good people have to do bad things for the, for the greater for the good, greater if good, you like. Yeah. Um, so he was a pacifist. In seeking good moral choices in the crucible of Nazi Germany, Bonhoeffer eventually became convinced there are no pure or right moral choices, only competing wrong ones. So in a in a situation like the um, you know the Nazi rise to power there were no good choices there were only bad choices so you had to make a decision which bad choices were you going to take um, and that that was his his dilemma Not if you a like. nice position to be difficult in. position yeah. to be in yeah he later wrote from prison that to be like Christ and come closer to holiness was not to seek to avoid guilt but to take guilt on for the sake of others yeah, yeah. So he saw this as a kind of moral self-sacrifice. I'm doing things I know are wrong. I'm doing things I don't wish to do, but I'm choosing to do them so that other people won't have to make that choice. Right, okay. So it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, you know, taking that harm, people like this who've lived through conflict, lived through the Vietnam War and things, would never condemn aggressors. Would never condemn um, 
dictators, those who cause oppression, on the grounds that these people come and go, times always change. You know, throughout history there have been many people who have been oppressive and cruel and, and uh, dictatorships and so on. But these things come and go. Um, and it's not necessarily a mindful thing to react to them with violence or with, with, with um, resistance even. Okay. Um, so in ordinary life we hardly realise that we receive a great deal more than we give and that it's only with gratitude that life becomes rich. This is another of Bonhoeffer's principles. Um, so even though he had to kind of sacrifice his own moral integrity in a sense for the greater good, he still lived life filled with gratitude. We pray for the big things and forget to give thanks for the ordinary small and yet not really small gifts. Fulfilled life is possible in spite of unfulfilled wishes and it's only with gratitude that life becomes rich. Mm. So he's my number four mindful person, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the kind of uncelebrated, unspoken heroes, I suppose, of the German resistance. You know, we forget that there were brave people who yeah, gave their lives in Germany you, resisting yeah, Hitler and it, you, the Third Reich. You're all about the, the Nazi party and things, but not about the people. Yeah. Hmm. So okay. who's your number three? Number three, you're enjoying this now, aren't you? So number three, not a famous person, um, but I've chosen her as representative. And this okay. is someone called Nancy Rothstein. Okay, so after Nancy Rothstein's son Josh passed away unexpectedly, she was seeking a way to offer a tribute for family and friends to honour his birthday. With each passing birthday, she adds one more item to the list. Last April would have been Josh's 21st birthday, and true to her tradition, Nancy showed these 21 ways to celebrate life. Oh, so she so adds one every each year. year yeah, it's quite it's moving, lovely, yeah. Each year that passes, she adds another reason to celebrate life to the list. So instead of grieving, she celebrates. And do these have a link with Josh? Like, are they things that... They're quite simple things. Th that he yeah. might enjoy. Th things that he might have enjoyed, but sim simple things that you could do every day. But again, it's this list of things to be grateful for. You have, we, always, uh, you know, we choose to be happy. Happiness yeah. is a choice. Um, and it's easy to say that when you've not perhaps experienced great trauma or great suffering. Um, so it's inspirational when someone who has suffered great loss, you know, that we couldn't imagine as parents, but is able, rather than um, to see that as a source of suffering, to see that as an opportunity to celebrate life and to find reasons to still be grateful each, each year. Um, so, do you want to hear her 21 Thank reasons you. to celebrate life? Um, so, smiling. Smiling makes you and those around you feel good. If you don't feel good, a smile can trick your brain into feeling better. Mm. That's that links it to the laughter yoga. Laughter yoga, and it's very—it's a take that harm principle mm. that you wake up every morning and you smile. Okay. Um, eat ice cream. Okay. <laughs> Run on the beach. If you can't physically do this, use your imagination, so you can unwind the beach. Yeah. Call someone who's ill or lonely. Listen to their story. Take the time. Tell them your story if they ask. Listen to music that touches your heart and soul. Sing in the shower, or out loud if you're comfortable. Oh, always singing. Always singing in yeah, the shower. Always singing, oh. singing everywhere. Everywhere. Uh, visit the grave of a loved one and celebrate your continued breath. And tell your loved one what's on your mind. Play with the dog. Ah, uh, that always makes you feel better. <laughs> Thank yourself for putting up with all the things about yourself that drive you nuts. Activate <laughs> your sense of humour. Apologise to someone that you've wronged in any way. 
take a day or even a few hours off to do something you always want to do but never take the time to do. Eat something you never indulge in, unless it's something you're allergic to, <laughs> and savour every bite, slowly, mindful eating. Rewatch your favourite funny or happy movie in your most comfortable clothes. Make plans with two friends that you're crazy about but never see, near or far away. Go outdoors to a natural setting. Sit, close your eyes, listen to the world. It's all an extension of you. Your breath connects you intrinsically to the world. Laugh. Do something fun or silly that evokes laughter. It's been said that laughter is God's sunshine. Place this list in an envelope and revisit it periodically to see how you're celebrating yourself. If you're good to yourself, then you can be much better to those around you. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Like that. Yeah, I so I appreciate, you know, Nancy Rothstein is not particularly important or famous in, in, a, in a sense, but quite inspirational as someone who has experienced tragedy and trauma and loss, but come back in a very positive way to celebrate life. Um, so there you go, there's my number three. Number two. Okay. Okay. Right, so, um, you're familiar with Helen Keller? Yes. Yeah? So, let me tell you a little story. Okay. Um, this is about Dr. Frank Mayfield. Now, this is an anecdote. It, the people may come back and say, not necessarily historically true or accurate, okay. but there is truth in it. It's, a, it's a, a story that someone told. Dr. Frank Mayfield was touring Tewkesbury Institute. This was a big mental institution that was closing down in America. When on his way out, he accidentally collided with an elderly floor maid. To cover the awkward moment, Dr. Mayfield started asking her questions. How long have you worked here? I've worked here almost since the place opened, the maid replied. What can you tell me about the history of this place? I don't think I can tell you anything, but I could show you something. Right, now this is a hospital with a dark history of kind of abuse of patients and things. This is why it was closed. With that, she took his hand and led him down to the basement, under the oldest section of the building. She pointed to one of what looked like small prison cells, the iron bars rusted with age, and said, that's the cage where they used to keep Annie Sullivan. And Annie Sullivan is my number two mindful person. Okay. okay. Who's Annie? The doctor asked. Annie was a young girl who was brought in here because she was incorrigible. Nobody could do anything with her. She'd bite and scream and throw food at people. The doctors and nurses couldn't even examine her or anything. I'd see them trying with her while she spat and scratched at them. I was only a few years younger than her myself, and I used to think I'd hate to be locked up in a cage like that. I wanted to help her, but I didn't have any idea what I could do. I mean, if the doctors and nurses couldn't help her, what could someone like me do? I didn't know what else to do, so I baked her some brownies one night after work. The next day I brought them in. I walked carefully to her cage and said, Annie, I baked these brownies for you. I'll put them right here on the floor and you can come and get them if you want. Then. I got out of there just as fast as I could because I was afraid she might throw them at me, but she didn't. She actually took the brownies and ate them. After that she was just a bit nicer to me when I was around and sometimes I'd talk to her and once I even got her laughing. One of the nurses noticed this and she told the doctor. They asked me if I'd help them with Annie. I said I would if I could. So that's how I came into it. Every time they wanted to see Annie or examine her, I went into the cage first and explained and calmed her down and held her hand. And this is how they discovered that Annie was almost blind. 
After they'd been working with her for about a year, and it was tough sledding with Annie, the Perkins Institute for the Blind opened its doors. They were able to help her, and she went on to study and even became a teacher herself. Annie came back to the Tewkesbury Institute to visit and to see what she could do to help out. At first the director didn't say anything, and then he thought about a letter he'd just received. A man had written to him about his daughter. She was unruly, almost like an animal. She was blind and deaf as well as deranged, in inverted commas, not my words. <laughs> he was at his wit's end, but he didn't want to put her in an asylum. So he wrote to the Institute to ask if they knew anyone who would come to his house and work with his daughter. And that's how Annie Sullivan became the lifelong companion of mm -hmm. Helen Keller. Yeah. Mm. So although I say that Annie was the hero, perhaps the mindful person, in some respects it was the maid, wasn't it? Um, who, we don't know if she had a name, she wasn't recorded in history, it's an anecdote that's just kind of survived. But it was her kindness, her compassion, her concern for the girl in the cage that led to the realisation that she was blind and the proper treatment and ultimately led to her becoming mm. a teacher and her teaching Helen Keller. Because yeah. I know I always remember when I was quite young reading a book about Helen Keller yeah. and that bit always stuck with me, you know, the fact that, you know, she was kind of quite violent and stuff because she had mm. no other The frustration way, yeah. of not being able to communicate yeah. with anyone, yeah. yeah. And then obviously her teacher had the same experience, understood mm. how she felt. Mm. Yeah, okay. like so number one, not a surprise, you have encountered this person before. This is Lawrence C. Jones, mm -hmm. whose famous quote, no man can force me to stoop low enough to hate him. Um, interesting connection with number two though, because he also worked with Helen Keller in his career as a teacher. Because, oh, right. uh, yeah, it, it, well, I'll, I'll come on to it, but whereas Lawrence C. Jones was very instrumental in, in promoting education for black people, people of colour in America. Helen Keller was able to set up um, education institutions for children who were blind, deaf, dumb, who otherwise would have been um, excluded from the education yeah. system. So Lawrence C. Jones, I'll tell you his story. To say his dream to educate poor black children would have humble beginnings is an understatement. In 1909, when Jones boarded the train for an area known as the Piney Woods, he travelled light. When he stepped off the train, he had a few textbooks, a few clean shirts, his diploma, and a total of $1.65 in his pocket. When the train arrived in Braxton, Mississippi, Jones stepped off and walked to an area covered with cedar trees. When he sat down to rest under one of those trees, he realised that this would be the perfect place to start what he would call Piney Woods Country Life School. His first day of class was held outside under cedar trees, with three children attending the school. He used the tree stump as his desk as he met the children outside each day to educate them. Soon, a local man gave him an abandoned cabin and a little patch of land which allowed him to move his little classroom indoors. Day after day, he worked hard to spread the word about his school, an intention to educate the sons and daughters of black sharecroppers. Some of the very first students to be educated at Pineywood's Country Life School were children and grandchildren of former slaves. Before focusing on academic subjects, Jones focused on teaching life skills to ensure each child who attended the school would be able to support themselves. Tuition for the school was paid in the form of goods and services from the students' farms, and it was truly a community effort. In 1918, a friend invited Jones to attend a revival at his church in West Mississippi. Jones wasn't a pastor, but his friend invited him because he was a powerful speaker with an inspiring testimony of good things happening for people of colour in Mississippi. 
Emotions were running high across the states and the country during this time. The First World War was being fought and rumours were rampant in Mississippi, including one rumour that Germans were meeting with people of colour to encourage them to rebel against whites. This rumour was spreading when Lawrence Jones went to speak at his friend's church. As Jones would later write in his memoir, over the course of the three-day revival, he used words and phrases that were drawn from military life, telling the congregation that life is a battle, they needed to fight back against ignorance, poverty and superstition. A group of white men were outside the church and heard Jones speaking. They became enraged and began to spread the word that the black pastor preaching at the church was challenging and inviting people of colour to rise up against and fight white people. On the third day of the, the, the revival, an angry white mob arrived at the church around noon and asked for Jones by name. When he stepped forward, a few of them grabbed him, held him down and placed a noose around his neck. Jones was dragged from the church and taken about a mile up the road to a field with one tree. He was forced to stand by the tree on a heap of trash and wood as the mob grew larger and Jones realised his fate. He was going to be burned and hung from that tree. Jones would never forget the sound of horses and mules arriving in the field, carrying more white men who wanted to be there and take part in his lynching. The crowd grew so large that it was hard for Lawrence Jones to hear what happened next. Someone shouted, let's make him talk before he burns. After repeating this yell a few times, the man stepped forward and taunted Lawrence Jones, telling him to make a speech before he died. And that's what Lawrence Jones did. He stood there, with a noose around his neck, on the pile where the man, men planned to burn him alive and told him about his work, and why he'd chosen to come to Mississippi. He shared that he'd graduated from college and chosen to dedicate his life to educating people and creating change for his race. He spoke of his fondness for his treasured friends, white and black, who worked with him at the school and donated to Piney Woods. The more he talked, the more names he mentioned, and Jones felt the mob back off. The tension was still there, but it wasn't as bad as it had been when the nurse f noose first went round his neck. He finally pleaded with the men to let him live, not for himself, but for his cause. Once he'd shared all he knew to save his life, the mob grew silent for what felt like a lifetime. He noticed a man move from the crowd and stand next to him by the tree. The older white man turned back to the crowd and said, I believe this man is telling the truth. I know the white men whose names he's mentioned. He's doing fine work. We've made a mistake. We ought to help him instead of hang him. The next thing the man did shocked Jones, this white man who joined the angry mob that had minutes ago been shouting to he was going to burn and hang, took off his hat and told the men they were going to take up a collection. They passed the hat round and raised a gift of $52.00. And 40 cents. Mm. So, how mindful was Lawrence C. Jones that he didn't respond with anger, he didn't react to the crowd. He thought, in that moment, what's the best thing to say and do to get this situation resolved in a way that's helpful and peaceful? And said the words that changed the minds and hearts of those listening that they'd been guilty of. Um, a misunderstanding, as Tina Han would say. You know, in any situation of conflict, it comes down to two people who have a misunderstanding of one another. So that's really powerful, isn't it? He went on then to ad advise uh, presidents, governments, you know, on setting yeah. up um, schools, education for, for, for young black children in America. Um, and ultimately, in the 1950s, um, broke barriers again when he appeared on the American This Is Your Life uh, TV oh, programme. Wow. Um, as the first, you know, black person really to to, to achieve to, to to be celebrated in that way. Um, so he's my number, yeah, one number one mindful person in my top five. What do you think? Mm, yeah, that's good. <laughs> oh. Interesting and good that it's not 
you know, who you would expect. Not who you perhaps would have yeah. expected. No. So my question, I suppose, is who would you choose? Who would your top five mindful people be? That's a very good question, mm. one that deserve, deserves a lot of thought. Mm. And maybe once maybe people have thought about it, how can they let yeah. us know? Well, as always, you can find us on Facebook, where we are One Together CIC. Mm-hmm. You can email us, and our email address is onetogethercic at gmail.com mm-hmm. or you can contact us through our website which is onetogethercic.co.uk okay but that's all for this program um but this is growing the good the mindful podcast and we will see you next, next time. time this is growing the good the mindful podcast